So this morning, if you have a Bible or have access to the scriptures, you can take a look at Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2 is where we're going to land today. Uh, This morning, we're going to begin a series that will carry over for the next four weeks entitled Making Sense of Our Sexuality. And so this morning, as we move through this, is an extremely important season for for us to to really address some things in the context of sexuality that many times uh, we haven't as a church, and I know the church in general, we have a difficulty in in addressing the things that we're going to talk through today and over the next uh, four weeks together. This morning, we're going to focus specifically on the foundation that God lays for us in terms of what our understanding should be about sexuality. And so we'll talk about that from Genesis 1 and 2 this morning. But before we get there, I want to just kind of set the context and why this is so important for us. Just please don't, just ignore the flashing light. That's not on purpose. We're not strobing, Pastor John, okay? So just focus, because I want us to really walk through this together this morning. So understanding that one of the things that we have a difficulty, especially in the church, understanding is that sex is good, okay? It is something created by God and given to humanity, and it is a positive thing. But what happens is because of our brokenness, because of what happens in our life, because of the things that we do, because of the culture that we live in, sex doesn't usually have a positive tone to it. It usually comes along with guilt and shame and embarrassment and judgment and all those things, and it begins to get corrupted out of what God created it to be. And so for as a church family, I want us to take time to walk through this together because We have a tendency not to talk about sex, and if we do, we talk about it in the wrong context. We talk about it in in terms of, don't do it because it's wrong, or you're going to go to hell, or shame and guilt get heaped on top of it, and we don't talk about it in a healthy way, and that's why through this journey together, I want to take some time to do that. Just so you know, this is definitely a PG-13 series, so if you have children with you right now and you don't think that they're at a PG-13 level, there's classes for them. As well, we've taken measures. We are muting the TV that is in our children's check-in just so uh, you can be the one to talk to your kids about sex. Pastor John doesn't have to be the one through a TV, and they're like, Mom, Dad, I heard this today. What was that all about? Well, maybe I should do that. It might spur a little conversation at lunchtime, right? But I want you to know the the sensitiveness of this topic, but the importance of why we want to do this. And this kind of comes out of my own personal journey and understanding why this is so important, okay? And that is, when we don't talk about sex and sexuality in a healthy context, one of two extremes has a tendency to happen. And I've seen this even in my life, and it's seen in the lives of so many people. And that is, if we don't talk about sex between ourselves, and especially with our kids, what happens is we become prudish, Yes, I just said prudish on a Sunday morning, okay? That means that we are so uncomfortable about the topic that we don't talk about it, therefore we don't know about it, and we don't understand it at all, and therefore, especially if you're raised in the church, I was raised in the church, and we didn't talk about sex. I was glad that I had parents that did, but even to that point, you are raised in this place where you don't talk about it, you don't do it, it's wrong, and then suddenly you're married, and you're like, I have no idea what I'm doing. I have no idea. I have no concept of this. Why? Because this has always been wrong and bad, and now suddenly it's okay? And so we have no category to deal with it, so we stay away from it, and we become prudes. And so when the world looks at us and wants to engage on the topic of sex or sexuality, we don't know what to say, because it's it's wrong, it's shameful, it's guilty. We don't talk about it, right? That's not true. The Bible is laced with all kinds of concepts and understandings about sexuality and sex that we have to be willing to embrace. And then what happens is that's one extreme, but the other extreme that happens when we don't talk about sex is not prudishness, but promiscuousness in our lives. 
which means I don't have categories to deal with this, so the only way I'm going to learn this is by experience, and I'm going to learn from culture, and I'm going to learn from the media, I'm going to learn from my friends, and so you go down this road, and I grew up in that. I remember even in my own youth group when I was growing up, but even in my neighborhood with friends who, some of them were Christian, some were non-Christian, some were Catholic, but I remember the dialogues we would have even as early as like fifth and sixth grade, and then you get into middle school, and middle school, the co- topic of conversation is when are you going to give up your virginity? That was the concept. That's even lower now. That's happening in the elementary school. But I remember I had a friend across the street. When we first had our friends and everybody first started talking about sex, we were 12 and 13 years old. And she, we would dialogue, and I remember talking to her about this, and she would end up, and when she was 13 and 14 years old, she's going to parties and all kind of crazy sexual stuff's happening at those parties. And I remember talking to her, I said, don't go there. I said, because it's not a good environment. You're going to end up doing something you regret. She goes, oh, I'm okay, I'm okay. She got pregnant at 14. Then she got pregnant at 17. Now she's on her third husband. Why? Because she grew up in a home, actually, she was Catholic, and they didn't talk about sex. They didn't talk about that. So how did she learn about it? She learned about it from her friends, from the media, those things around her. But she, what, became promiscuous because nobody talked about it with her. So that's why this topic is so important, and we're going to navigate some different things over the next three or four weeks together. But today I want to begin with just the foundation that God lays for us when it comes to sexuality and understanding that. So before we move on, I just want to define two key terms. So when I use these phrases or these terms, you know what I'm referring to. The first one is the term sexuality. Sexuality, when I'm using that term, is referencing all things related to the act of sex, intimacy, gender, and identity. It is the broad kind of category of sexuality that covers all of those things. Now, more specifically, I'll use a phrase, healthy sexual intimacy, and that has to do with the full range of sexual expression within the context of marriage. So those two things are really important to understand. So when we're referring to those, that's what we're talking about today. So the first thing I want to do is just take some time to talk about three quick things that really are very important. Now, for some of you, you think, I got that. That's basic. That's foundational, which sometimes we have to go back to the foundation to remember what it is. Why sex? Why has God given us this gift that's supposed to be good, but so many times doesn't turn out to be so good? Why sex? Three things. The first one is this. It's in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. Because it produces life. So Genesis 1, 28 says, God blessed them, talking about Adam and Eve and his creation. He said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over every living creature that moves on the ground. So God, one of God's first instructions or even commandments to Adam and Eve or to, to husband and wife is to bear fruit by what? By being intimate with each other, experiencing sexual intimacy in such a way that you produce fruit. You have a child. It's one of the original gifts of why God gave us this thing called sex. The fact, the word is para in Hebrew, which means it's the same word that's used of a healthy fruit tree. What does a healthy fruit tree do? It produces fruit. That is a sign that it is healthy. And so that is part of what God has wired into the DNA of a man and a woman to have the capacity to bring life into the world. That's one of the reasons. Now, I know in this room right now, because uh, we are in different stages of life and face different challenges, and because we live in a broken world that's been impacted by sin, there are people in every service, in every gathering that we have, that maybe you don't have the capacity, because of something that's gone wrong in, in, your, in your life or in your body, to actually have children. So you feel like, oh, well, what, what is it that God gave this, and I can't experience that? Sadly, that's part of the impact of the fall in humanity and the brokenness of humanity. The beautiful thing is God not only created sex, you know what also he created? A thing called adoption. In fact, it's the very term that the Bible uses to describe us coming into the family of God. We are adopted into his family. 
And that is not only because of God's using that terminology, but because God also knows there are parents, sadly, in a broken world who give birth to children who either can't or choose not to care for them. And they are the kids that need to be cared for in the foster care system or to be adopted. I have two nieces in my family who are adopted. And they both come out of situations where mom and dad don't even really know who each other are because of what happened. It was kind of the equivalent of a one-night stand. And then the other came from a context where they knew, but mom couldn't care. And so they had to give their girls up for adoption. And because my sister and her husband, they couldn't conceive, those two beautiful gifts came into our family via this thing called adoption. See, even though you may not have the physical capacity because of the brokenness in our world, but God may give you a heart to parent and to love a child, there's a beautiful thing called adoption that changes everything. But God gives humanity the ability through the context of sexual intimacy in marriage to produce life. If you just think about that for a moment, that the creator of the universe gives to humanity the ability to create. That's crazy. That is crazy. But that's what God invites us to be a part of, and that's one of the first reasons why he's given us this thing called sex. And then the second thing, why sex is because, yes, this is true, it provides pleasure. This is where it's going to get really awkward. Everybody, the first service, they got really quiet at this point. <clears throat> because we always talk about, yeah, you know, it's about reproduction, and that's, it's about flourishing, which is the word that's used for us, about, and that's about making things flourish in the world, and that's why sex. But then when it comes to pleasure, we get all weird. Like, oh, it's, I know it feels good, but we're not supposed to talk about that in church, right? There's an entire book of the Bible dedicated to it. It's called the Song of Songs or Song of Solomon. And there's, it's funny, when you read commentators on that book, those who are, no offense to anybody who has written this, but some are really prudish and like, it's really not about sex. It's about the imagery between God and his people. Oh, please, come on. If you read it, and if you're underage, please don't read it. Wait till you're older. That book is about sexual intimacy between a husband and a wife. It's explicit. And we struggle with that, but it's in the Bible. Why? Because sex is good. And sex is supposed to bring pleasure as a part of the union between a man and a woman. And that's not a bad thing. That's not a thing that's supposed to be attached with shame. But shame gets attached to our sexuality all the time. Why? Because we grow up in a religious context that says it's bad, it's bad, it's bad, it's wrong, don't do it, don't do it. And then finally, when we're allowed to do it, we don't know what to do. Because we, in fact, we even struggle with the fact that am I allowed to feel sexual pleasure? Somehow it's dirty, it's wrong, it's shameful. I have, I have counseled so many couples, particularly premarital couples who are getting married and we walk through a process together and I could tell you story after story after story. It depends the context, but, but many times when someone is raised in a Christian household and in the church and there wasn't the dialogue about sex, what happens is they struggle with this concept that sex can actually be good that I can actually relate to. In fact, there was one couple, and I was counseling them, and her concern was, of course, for him, he was very excited about the wedding night, and she was petrified of it. She said, I'm afraid that, that I'm not going to be able to be intimate with my husband. And that was a concern for her, and we talked through it, but then after they got married, about three months later, they came in for follow-up counseling. And so we sat down, and in fact, they sat down with Kim and I both and began to talk about, well, what's going on? And this is what they said, that we've been married for three months and we have yet to consummate the marriage. Now, when I saw him, this guy is a rock star because he didn't look at his wife and said, yeah, we haven't been able to consummate the marriage yet. No, he looked at her with love and said, we just haven't been able to. And so we started talking. She said, listen, I, there is this block when it comes to intercourse with my husband. I just can't do it. Something in me feels like, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong, I'm not allowed to do it. 
And it, about a month later, finally, God broke that shame over her life, and she was actually able to be with her husband in an intimate way. They have two kids now. They're happily married. But she came from this background that says, no, it's wrong, it's wrong, it's wrong. And she didn't know that it was okay for her to experience pleasure in that context with her husband. And sometimes that's what we do. It's like, oh, any type of sexual pleasure is wrong. It's sinful. No, it's not. God created it, and he created a context for it. It's called marriage. And it should be something that we experience in this life. And then there's a third thing. Why sex is because it reflects the image of God. Now, this is the bigger spiritual narrative of what's going on in the scriptures, what God does. This is what's crazy about how God infuses into the creation of humanity this beautiful picture of who he is. Listen to Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. It says, so God created mankind in his own image, and in the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So the concept is, is God says, listen, I'm going to reflect my image and it's not that a male on his own or a female on her own somehow don't reflect the image of God. We all do. But he said, I'm going to create male and female so when they come together in this context called marriage, it reflects who I am. It's in my image. Because God is neither male nor female, but he encompasses both. To understand that. He gives himself the title father, but that doesn't mean that he has a gender. He's above gender. And because he created gender. But to understand, you go to Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, which says this. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. So God embeds this right at the beginning. What is that concept? That's the word echad in Hebrew, which means one. And the word used in Genesis 2 is the same word that God uses of himself in the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, when he says in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, I am one. The Lord your God is one God. One God, one in marriage. So what is, what is, what is the context of our sexual expression within marriage? What is that? It is a reflection of the image of God. It's this gift that God's, in a sense, you can say that it is God's self-portrait to reflect his image to the world around. That what happens when a man and a woman come together in the context of marriage and sexual intimacy, what they experience is this bond, which we'll talk about, but this oneness that reflects the way God is, the eternal God reflected in a very finite, non-eternal human being. That's crazy. But if you and I just think about that, understand that's the way that God created it to be so that healthy sexuality or healthy sexual intimacy in the context of marriage isn't just about reproduction, isn't just about pleasure, it's about the reflection of the nature and image of God in this world. That's why sex is such a beautiful thing. And that's why we have to get over our hang-ups about shame and guilt and awkwardness and prudishness. Why? Because God's given us this expression to say, listen, this reflects the oneness of who I am as you are in one connection with your spouse. Does that make sense? Are you still there? Or are we really at the awkward stage yet? First service took about 35 minutes to actually come alive. They finally took a deep breath. Everybody take a deep breath. It's okay. We're all right. Okay, we good? We're moving on? Okay. So what I want to focus on now is jump back into Genesis chapter 2. I'm going to look at verse 24 again and then verse 25. So what is this healthy sexual intimacy look like? What is it, what's the context we're going to talk about? Again, we're laying the foundation as we move forward of what we're referring to, what God has laid out as healthy sexual intimacy in the context of marriage. So let me read uh, verse t- uh, 24 and 25 of Genesis 2 again. We'll talk about what this looks like. So he says, why th- this is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. That's the principle. But then verse 25, Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. 
What is going on there? Why is that described? So let's just go back in time for a moment. So God creates Adam and Eve, creates them in the perfect state, in a perfect context in paradise, in the Garden of Eden. There is no sin. Sin hasn't entered the equation yet. And because of that, they have a context of what God created for a husband and wife to experience in the context of marriage. They were completely naked and they weren't embarrassed. They had no concern of covering themselves, of running and hiding, of, of making sure that their spouse didn't see them. There wasn't any shame attached, none of that. They were naked and they felt no shame. We struggle with that, don't we? We really do. Why is that true? There's something to follow here. Why did Adam and Eve experience that? Why do we struggle with that? Because the context that's being described here is before sin enters the equation. See, what happens when sin enters in, and you get to chapter 3 of Genesis, you see that sin enters in. When sin enters in, what comes along with it is a thing called guilt. And what guilt is, is that you and I are guilty in a moment of a violation of doing something wrong. But when we don't deal with that guilt... What happens is that guilt grows into a thing called shame. Where guilt is attached to a moment or an event, shame becomes our identity. And the beauty is that although that was in Genesis chapter 2 before sin, now that we live in the context after sin, but we have Jesus Christ who gave his life on the cross and through his death paid for the brokenness that leads to shame. So you and I could, just as Adam and Eve experienced in their relationship, you can experience today with your spouse to be naked and yet feel no shame. Because of what Jesus, Jesus reversed the effects of the fall in Genesis chapter 3. We can live in that. So you think, well, we can't experience what Adam and Eve, well, you're not going to go walk around naked in public. I know you're not going to do that, okay? But you can experience that level of intimacy in the context of your own relationship with your spouse in the context of marriage. That's why this is so important. So understanding that, that shame does not have to be this thing that controls us, that God has given to us. What does healthy sexual intimacy do? What does it look like? The first thing is this. Again, going out of these two verses, what we can unpack from there. The first thing is that it provides a context for full acceptance. So this is really important. So when you and I come into the context of marriage and you're bound and connected to your spouse, and you've been intimate, what happens is now you're in a context where because, as Adam and Eve were described, you are naked yet without shame, if it's a healthy context, you have the potential and capacity to fully know and to fully be known. And you can't fully accept somebody until you fully know them. You can make a a kind of a prediction based on faith and belief and trust, and that's what a wedding is. You're making a vow based on good faith that you're committing to this person and you will stay committed to them, but the act of sexual intimacy within marriage, you know what it does? It allows you to fully know each other so that now you fully accept each other. There's nothing to hide. There's, there's no secrets. And that's why God's created this because one of the greatest human needs is to be accepted, how much of our life do we spend doing things to try to earn people's favor or approval? To try to be what? Accepted. God creates the context in marriage. God ultimately demonstrates his acceptance by choosing to love us even though we're broken and sinful. And in the context of marriage, again, a reflection of the nature of God, God gives us what? Sexual intimacy in this bond to say, listen, you can fully accept and fully know each other in this context. That's the way God set it up. And that means that to understand that, that, that that connection that you have, that bond that you have, begins to change and uh, your understanding of your spouse. So for example, so when you are bound or you're connected to your spouse and you can fully accept them, you are not making that decision on what the culture makes the decision on. How good looking are they? 
That's one of that's the first criteria, right? Is how good looking are they? How is their physical appearance good, right? Because you look at people and go, ah, no, I don't want to go out with them. I don't want to consider them white because they're not good looking enough. The other way the culture goes, it goes beyond appearance, and it says, if I'm going to be compatible with this person, I have to be able to have sex with them first before I get married, because what if we're not, sexually, we're not sexually compatible, which, by the way, is a misnomer. You can't be sexually incompatible with your spouse. It's not your spouse's fault. The challenge is, is that you don't try sex on like you try clothes on. It doesn't work that way. Because when you try sex on, you can't take it back even though you have a receipt, okay? You, you have a bond with that person now. You are connected to them. And so the understanding is, is that when you are fully accepted, that means I accept my spouse no matter what stage of life I go through with them, no matter what struggle they're going through physically, no matter what age we are, no matter what we look like physically. This is really important. If I fully accept my spouse, I don't accept them according to what their weight is on the scale or how beautiful or how handsome they are. I don't do that. Why? Because the bond that God creates in sexual intimacy doesn't necessarily put blinders on you, but what happens is you begin to see your spouse as the ultimate definition of what a man should be or what a woman should be. God created that for us. So there is that bond that is that connection. And that's why regardless of seasons of life, because if you are basing your uh, acceptance of your spouse on their physical appearance, boy, are you in for a world of hurt as age takes its toll, right? It happens, right? Hey, guys, what happens when your wife gets pregnant and she puts on 50 pounds? What's going to happen then? Oh, wow, okay, she's not so good now, is she? But if she's the definition of beauty because you're bonded with her and you've already made the commitment to accept her, she is beautiful to you. Not because you're making it up, but because she is. To this day, Kim still can't believe, and I told her, you were gorgeous when you were pregnant, nine months pregnant with both Courtney and Jordan. She thinks I'm crazy. I'm not. I'm convinced she is. She was gorgeous, and she's beautiful today. Why? Because she's my definition of beauty. And the same is true for her with me. And that's what we have to understand. To be fully accepted means you have to be fully known. And the only way you're fully known is in the context of marriage. And when that bond comes, then it's not based on the checklist of why we think we love this person or choose to accept them. Why? Because there's a bond. If you've yet to experience that, there's something that you've missed. You haven't gotten to a level of communication in your life with your spouse that chooses to fully accept them. Because we'll talk more about that, but, but sex has become something that you only see as what you want and not what they need. We'll talk about how your sexual expression has to do more with your spouse than it has to do with you. If it has to do with you, you won't ever experience what God wants you expect, experience in sexual intimacy in the context of marriage. All right, second thing. Healthy sexual intimacy also encourages relational transparency. So picture this again in, in Genesis we're understanding that Adam and Eve, naked, no shame, they cannot hide anything from each other. You don't read in Genesis 1 or 2, you don't read anything about Adam and Eve going and hiding behind a bush except in Genesis 3 when God shows up and now what? Guilt and shame enters the equation because sin's present. But they have nothing to hide from each other. They had no secrets. They had nothing that they were holding back from each other. And what happens in sexual intimacy within marriage, you no longer have things that you hide. Barriers begin to drop, and you have to be willing to do that. But that means in order to get to that point, there is a broader context of relational intimacy, which means even though there's no barrier because literally in the act of sex, you are naked with your spouse, very connected physically. And the same thing is true relationally and emotionally so that just as you hold nothing back physically, you hold nothing back emotionally or relationally with your spouse. That means to, ex to experience the fullness of what God intended for marriage, you can have no secrets with your spouse. I have, I have 
counseling appointments with people, and they will say this. I can't tell my spouse this. And I said, we have a problem. Let's not even talk about what you can't tell them. Let's talk about the fact that you can't tell them. See, if you are one flesh, that doesn't just refer to flesh. One has to do with what? You are bound and connected at every level, which means you can hold nothing back. And that's why it's so important, even though it may be difficult and depending on what you're navigating in your life, your spouse should know your sexual history, everything about it. Because if they don't, then every time you engage sexually with your spouse, you are bringing to the party your past. Your past that is in secret, your past that the enemy will haunt you with, your past that the enemy will throw guilt and shame over you on, and you will never be fully present with your spouse because you still have your history that's in secret. But the moment you bring it out in the context of that relationship, although it may be painful, then what happens is the enemy loses his power because his power comes in secrecy. Now it's in the light. Now, it may be painful for your spouse to navigate that. In fact, if you deal with sexual addiction, there's a process to walk through in, in terms of disclosure that you just don't blab all, all at once and, and find out that, wait, or you don't do it a little at a time as well it's because you keep injuring your spouse. You find a way when you're at a place of health to begin to unpack what's happened in your life. It's so important. That is one thing that is so important that Kim and I learned early on. Kim and I have absolutely no secrets at every level of our life. What happens is when you're first married, you disclose all of your secrets, and then the longer you're married, you have no secrets because they can read your mail, right? And guys, you know that's true? If, even if I wanted to have a secret from Kim, I couldn't because she would know even before I speak a word what's on my mind, and the same with her. And that's part of what the bond is that God wants us to have, this complete transparency. And that's what God's desired for us. Somebody who fully knows all that I am, and this is the great thing, and still loves me. That's marriage. That's the way that God created the context to look like. We even say the, this phrase when I've done it so many weddings, and somehow the phrase gets woven into the vows, which is, I give myself and all that I am, including my secrets, including my past, including my brokenness. All the way on comes to the table to, to contribute to what God wants to do by his grace in our relationship. So third thing, healthy sexual, sexual intimacy also builds a bond of true unity. So if you understand, we'll talk more about this. When, when we engage in sexual intercourse, there is a bond, whether you want it to happen or not, there is actually a physiological chemical bond between a man and a woman. It happens. And when that happens between strangers, there's a word that describes it. It's called awkward because you don't have the context of marriage. And what happens is if you engage in sexual activity with someone who you're not committed to in marriage and you walk away from that, you still have a bond and it becomes awkward because that's why the guy doesn't call the morning after, right? It's awkward. Why? Because I don't know if I want to be with this person the rest of my life, but man, there's this weird, strange bond that I have with them. Why? Because you had sex, and there's this connection. But when that is brought into the context of marriage, it's not awkward anymore. Because what you have now is you have what God is describing in Genesis chapter 2. You are one flesh. You're bound together. You're connected at the deepest level. And there isn't anything awkward about that. In fact, it enhances every other part of your relationship. Why? Because you feel a sense of connection. There is a deep emotional connection. Why? Because you've gone through something which you shared with somebody that you haven't shared with anybody else. And because of that, there's a deep bond that you have. That applies to all areas of our life outside the context of sex. So think about this. If you've gone through a deep, moving, powerful, emotional experience with somebody else in life, you have a bond with them, don't you? Think about, think about for example, anybody been on a missions team that was a struggle or difficulty or very life-changing for you? 
you still remember the people you went on that trip with, don't you? In fact, when you get back, you have this camaraderie with them that you don't have with anybody else. Why? Because you sweat and you were, you were pouring your life into things. You were struggling in Haiti with the food and the heat and everything. So you're bound together and you feel this sense of bond. Why? Because you walk through it together. There's a pastor, a uh, pastor in Beverly Hills. His name's Jeff Freeman. Jeff and I see each other about once every four or five years, if that. But we have a bond. Because Jeff and I went to Brazil one, uh, one year, a number of years ago, and I've shared this before, but we were on our way back from Brazil. We were an hour outside of LAX, and our plane lost altitude, like drastic altitude, like come out of your seat kind of altitude drop. And when, when that happened, Jeff was sitting next to me, and uh, as, as it happened, we both immediately like grabbed each other's hands. He starts at the top of his lungs. You could hear the plane collectively. Everyone's like, oh, like you're going down a roller coaster. And he just starts, as loud as he can, he starts speaking in tongues. It was crazy. He just like starts, because he's freaked out, and I'm freaked out, and I'm just like closing my eyes. I'm grabbing the, the armrest over here. I'm squeezing Jeff's hand. I open my eyes. My dad's sitting in front of me, who's flown like a million miles, and I looked at his face. He was concerned. I'm like, oh, we're in trouble. This is not good. And then finally, it all, we, we leveled out, and we got back, and we got on the ground safely. But to this day, every time I encounter Jeff or have a conversation with Jeff, we always go back to Remember what happened on that plane? And to this day, Jeff always says, you grab my hand first. And I said, nope, you grab my hand first. You were the chicken. I comforted you. No, he goes, that's the other way around. We have this deep bond with each other because we went through something highly emotional and very, very impactful in our life that we will never forget. Sexual intimacy in the context of marriage has exactly the same bond and connection. And that's why it's so powerful. That's why it's one flesh. And that's why you have this sense of unity with your spouse when you begin to experience that in the context of marriage. And then the final thing, the final thing is, is that healthy sexual intimacy removes the cloak of shame in our lives. I'm going to spend some time just talking about, about this. So what happens is that shame gets attached to us because of the things that happen in our life. And it makes its way into intimacy and in the sexual arena and becomes something that just kind of covers over that. It could be because of our past failures. It could, could be because of the culture we live in. It could be because we grew up in a judgmental context. But somehow shame just overshadows this thing called sexuality and then specifically sexual, healthy sexuality within the context of marriage. And it's not supposed to be a part of that. Shame is not supposed to be part of the equation. But it, it has a tendency to work its way in. God's perfect context was Adam and Eve were naked and had no shame. That's what God intends for us to experience, but sometimes we don't experience that. Sometimes we have shame attached to it. Sometimes that shame comes in because we do think of the fact of our own self-image. We do think of the fact of how we look or how we come off, and we have difficulties because we're embarrassed for ourselves, that we don't know how to be vulnerable. We don't know how to truly be intimate. We don't, why? Because we're afraid we're gonna get rejected by our spouse. I had another couple that we were, I was counseling on their way to, to their wedding day, and and same thing, you know, we always, I, this is one of the things I tell couples, especially couples who have yet to experience uh, their sexual intimacy, I'll tell them, listen, just going to give you a warning up front, and this is usually the guys are really bummed when I tell them this, the worst sex of your life will happen on your honeymoon night. Because the guy's like, oh, it's going to be awesome, it's going to be everything I've dreamt of, no, it's going to be a nightmare, okay? Just set it up that way so if it's any fun at all, it's a positive, okay? And the reason I tell them that is because when you get married, you don't know what in the world you're doing. Especially if you come from a context where you've come from sex is bad, sex is bad, and then suddenly it's good, really? Like one minute it's bad, the next minute you're like, I don't even know what I'm doing. But that's the beauty of marriage. You don't know what you're doing. Your spouse doesn't know what you get to figure it out for the rest of your life. That's why Kim and I for years always hear people, man, sex gets better with age. I'm like, oh, really? 
I don't know about that. I'm just thinking about 70, 80-year-olds. I don't know if sex gets better at that age. But you know what? Kim and I are going to be married for 25 years this year. And I can tell you, sex has gotten better. It does. With age. Why? Because there's a deeper bond. There's a deeper connection. There's this acceptance. But as I was counseling this couple, the, the, I told them this, and, I said, and she said, I, I'm afraid of the, the wedding night. That's a fear for me, of course. He's like, I can't wait. And I said, why are you afraid? She goes, because I don't think I can be naked in front of my husband. She said, I've struggled my whole life with my weight. I've struggled with my self-image. That if he really sees who I am without clothes on, he's not going to love me or accept me. And I, as we're counseling, the guy, he was a rock star too. He's just like, he goes, I will love you no matter what. Three or four months later, they came back in for a follow-up, and they were doing great. I said, how do you feel? She goes, I feel so comfortable in my own skin. She goes, it doesn't matter. My husband loves me for who I am. And she said it was hard the first night. It was a little bit of embarrassment and shame, but she goes, I got over it in a hurry because I realized his responsiveness to me was that he loved me regardless of what size I was. And I was beautiful to him. And I think if we understand, see, shame comes in, and what, what does shame do? What happens when you get to Genesis chapter 3 and shame enters the equation? What's the first thing Adam and Eve do? They run and hide. They hear God walking in the garden. They try to go hide themselves. They try to cover themselves, right? Like, uh, why? Because I know I'm naked. Why? Because guilt equals shame, and shame drives us away from relationship. Same thing happens in marriage. If you are living in shame in the context of your marriage or in sexual intimacy, you will find yourself at more and more of a distance because you're not dealing with it. You're separating yourself because you're not being honest or you're not talking about what's going on. God created us to, to remove this cloak of shame. How do we do that? I'm going to ask the worship team to come and join me. In fact, we're going to transition. Lights are going to get low here. We're not trying to set the mood, okay? That's for you and your spouse, all right? <laughs> You're like, whoa, what's happening here? So I know I'm a little dark because our lights aren't working, but you can, you can listen to my voice. So in the next few moments, we're going we're gonna to go back into worship. We're going to conclu conclude with that. But I want you to know, um, in fact, uh, prayer teams, you can kind of go and s position yourself. Um, we're going to have some prayer teams set up a little bit back from the front, not right up in front, Okay. But I really, it's really important. One of the things that, that has to happen, how do we find our way into healthy sexuality? How do we find our way into healthy sexual intimacy? The primary way we do that is when we come to grips with our brokenness in such a way that we're willing to go and, and allow people to pray for us, allow people to have input into our lives, and to come out of the shadows into the light. Now, it's not to expose you and to make you feel guilt or shame, but what it is is to get you to a place where you realize God loves you so much that he's wanting you to step out of darkness into light to find freedom, not to find judgment. We'll talk about it in the weeks to come, but if you go through the Gospels, read through every story where Jesus encountered someone who was dealing with sexual immorality in their life. Not one time did shame ever enter the equation. In fact, with a woman caught in adultery, she was guilty. She was caught in the act of adultery. Jesus doesn't say, well, I condemn you like everybody else. He says, no, I don't condemn you. And then he says this, now go leave your life of sin. That's the freedom that comes. So diversity in this room, wide range of people and experiences. So you may be here and you're single and you know in your experience, you've already exper experienced sexual intimacy. You've had intercourse with somebody else who's not your spouse. In fact, for the last 35 to 40 minutes, you've, like, you've been saying in your mind, please make it end. I don't, please don't talk about this anymore because you're making me uncomfortable. Because every time you talk about it, I feel like every eye in the room is looking at me because of the brokenness in my life. Which, by the way, is not true because we're all thinking of our own stuff right now. And so in that, your, your shame is entering in. And what does shame tell you to do? Shame says, don't do anything. Be paralyzed. Isolate yourself. Don't let anybody know what's really going on in your life. And that's when the enemy wins. If that's you, I want you to understand there is hope for you because 
no matter how guilty you are or the level of sin that you've experienced or the brokenness that you have in your life, the blood of Jesus is always stronger. It can cover every point of brokenness, guilt, shame, violation, immorality, whatever it is, and brings freedom. And in this context and at our church, there will be no shame for this. If you come clean with what's going on in your life and someone looks at you cross-eyed, come tell me because I'll punch them in the mouth. I'm serious. We do not do a good job in the church of, we always, we look at people like, oh, I can't believe you did that. Oh, please, as though you're perfect. No, not here. This is a shame-free zone. So in a moment, when we go back into worship, I want you to head towards to one of the prayer teams and just say, hey, I, you don't even have to confess if you can't, but you can just say, this is what I've been walking through. I just need someone to agree that the blood of Jesus covers me and brings forgiveness because I want to experience life. If the cat's already been out of the bag, God can redeem that even so that if you, when you do get married, you don't have to carry your sexual baggage into, sin with, into the marriage with you. God can set you free from that. Second category, you're also single, but you're a virgin, but you are struggling because God has given you a healthy thing that's actually good. It's called a sex drive. It's good, just in a different context. So you're struggling with lust. You're struggling with pornography. You're even maybe str struggling with self-gratification, masturbation, because you're, you're like, I feel these feelings. I want to experience this pleasure, but I don't know what to do. And so you live in, you're just gripped by guilt and shame in your life. God says there's a better way, and he's wanting you to know it's not wrong for you to feel what you're feeling, but you need to have a healthy way of understanding how to navigate that. So if that's you as well, realize God covers your brokenness and Jesus forgives your sin because of the cross. He takes your sin and he nails it to the cross and pays for it. And you as well can walk in freedom as you walk out of that. Now with those first two and even the third one, I'll tell you, there comes this accountability that has to maybe come. You may confess, but you need someone who cares about you asking questions, saying, hey, how are you doing? That's why we did Conquer and that's why there's Conquer small groups for guys on Sunday night maybe dealing with sexual addiction. On, on Tuesday nights, you can come for that. It's at seven o'clock. We're navigating some resources for women. But the last category, you're married. And you, if you'll be honest, now you're even sitting next to your spouse and you feel uncomfortable. You are struggling sexually. And it might be because something you did or your spouse did or you've experienced in your life. Or maybe this fact is just there's so much guilt and shame or there's so much division in that area. You haven't honestly talked about what's going on. You haven't cared for your spouse. There is a great divide in your sexual expression within your marriage. The only way that's gonna get alleviated is if you, in a safe context, begin to talk with your spouse about what you're experiencing and what you're feeling. And if you've been violated or you violated your spouse or something has happened, the same thing applies. Jesus' blood shed on the cross for us covers our sin. We don't have to live in that brokenness. There is hope for our sexuality. It can be fully redeemed. Even in this life, we can experience what Adam and Eve experienced. Why? Because Jesus' death on the cross purchased us what? Freedom from sin. We can experience. It doesn't mean that we always live in that, but it means that when we fail, God forgives us. So as we move forward from us and we worship the last 10 minutes or so of our, our gathering this morning, I want you to understand it may be difficult to get up, but at some time during this, this series, you're going to need to get up if that's you. If, if you don't have the courage to do it today, but you can talk to somebody who's sitting next to you or somebody else you know, you need to talk to somebody. You need to walk into the light without shame or guilt, but walk into the light so Jesus can bring freedom. Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, in these next few moments, we thank you that you are a God who was fully God and fully human, so you know what it is to deal with the things that we have dealt with and are dealing with in the area of sexuality. And because of that, you not only understand, 
but you know that there needed to be a way for us to redeem this thing, this broken thing in our sexuality. And because of that, you gave your life. Lord, we have a hard time realizing that you actually did die for all of our sins, but that one of those sins is you died for our confusion and our corruption of our sexuality. You died for that because you love us. And so I pray that today you would begin to redeem that brokenness in our life so that we might be able to experience the fullness of what you created us to experience, of what that looks like in our lives. So in these next few moments, Lord, bring your forgiveness, bring your healing, bring your redemption so that we might be able to be whole before you as you choose to love us, accept us, and forgive us. We thank you, Jesus, in your name. Amen.